0: Our scripture text this morning is from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming." The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a very strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness.
1: Well, this is one of these easier texts that you get to preach in (laughs) preaching class. I'm just kidding. You know, many people have tried to predict the return of Christ. Um, Not surprisingly, there's a lot of crazies that have done it, but there's a lot of notables too. A lot of notables have tried. Martin Luther thought 1600 would be the year that in fact Christ would return. Uh, Christopher Columbus didn't predict the return of Christ once, but twice. He was wrong both times, but he did twice. John Wesley predicted it would be 1836. So people have longed to determine the time that he returns and, and even the events surrounding his return. That They've, they've longed for that. But what, what do you think when you consider a passage like this about the return of Jesus? D- does it excite you or does it cause you to fear? Or or is it just so confusing to you that you kind of just, you know, you just leave it to the side because you just can't figure it out and I'm not going to try. It matters. Eschatology, that is the study of end things, it matters. It matters how we, how we think about the return of Christ. Not understanding it, Uh, Not being aware of it can leave you in great fear and trepidation. That's what you find in this church here in Thessalonica. I mean, they were in great fear. They didn't fully understand. They had kind of bought into uh, a false claim that was being made, and it was causing them great fear. That's what Paul's doing. He prayed last week. We looked at 11 and 12, where he prayed that they would finish well, that they would be steadfast in their faith. But then we see him in, in chapter Two shift to begin to return to this idea of of this return of Jesus because they were in fear this This error had crept into the church that they had heard and believed that Jesus Christ had returned, and yet they were still suffering, so they were concerned they were confused what's happening? and so Paul begins to kind of peel back this layer, uh, peel back the onion on. When is the coming, and what will it be like? How will we know? This is really important information. But I want you to know that Paul's speaking here as a pastor. He wants to comfort people by giving them a right understanding of this return. Now, this passage is notoriously difficult to understand. It has things in here that will be just challenging Uh, to be able to say, yes, this is the only response to this. So I'm just going to give three charges in here, and I I think Paul's doing that. And and he's pastorally guiding the people. He's saying, first, don't be shaken by false claims. Don't be shaken by what you hear. Don't be shaken by the events of the news. That's the first thing he's saying. And then I think, secondly, he's going to say, don't forget what you know. Don't forget the Scriptures. Don't forget what you have already learned and what God has revealed to us in the Scripture. And then third, is going to say, don't be deceived. Uh, many of us, I don't think we feel we couldn't be deceived. But let me warn you. you know, Jesus says even the elect could have been deceived if it wasn't for his grace to return. So he says, don't be deceived. So, so first, let's look at don't be shaken. Look with me at 1 and 2. He says, now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul is saying to them, don't be so shaken. You know, clearly he's talking about the return. He says the return of our Lord and our being gathered together to him. Remember, we looked at that in chapter four, at the last half of chapter four and in chapter five. We talked about the return of Christ and and the dead in Christ being gathered to him first and then those alive will be caught up to him and then join him in the air. And this is one coming, not two, and then immediately return to bring relief to the suffering and to bring retribution to the wicked where he's going to make it. That's all what we learned. They had forgotten that. They were alarmed. This new teaching that Jesus Christ had come, that the day of the Lord had already come and passed. And they're still suffering. So you can imagine how they're feeling. If you're banking on the return of the Lord, bringing about an end to your suffering, and yet you continue to suffer, you're like, what gives? What did I not understand? Uh, to be shaken means uh, to be unsettled in your convictions. So the way they were convicted about the return of Christ began to become very, very unsettled in their minds. The word to be alarmed is used of a boat that loses its mooring. You know, the winds are so strong, it blows the boat away from the morning and mooring, and now it's being tossed to and fro. And that kind of gives you a picture of the state of their mind. Here they're suffering, and the return of the Lord has come. All of a sudden now, everything is up for grabs for them. And so Paul, as a pastor, is calling to them, don't be shaken, don't be alarmed by what you hear. Even Jesus said, there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars. He said, the end, the end is not yet. So, so we want to be mindful of that. We want to be mindful to not be shaken. Now, now let me give you just a warning here. I think that we are susceptible to being shaken when we have an over fascination with the end times. You know, if you're one of those where you get all the pieces like on a puzzle and you're figuring out it's 40 years is a generation and not a generation will pass away and you're trying to put all the pieces together, let me tell you to be careful because it's not like a puzzle of which you have 60 percent of the pieces. That's what we think, it's a puzzle, and we'll get them close together, and, and some puzzle pieces we really got to work to get in place, or we got to fill in the blanks. Uh, Carol and I spent a number of years at the beginning of our Christian life kind of being fascinated by this stuff, and every new event on the news, and every new issue in the Middle East, and every new idea, and, and boy, it was, we were, we were quite shaken. Not shaken, alarm, but very confused over things. So watch the over-fascination. Jesus said in Matthew 24, No one knows the day or the hour, not even the sun. So, so let's just be not overly fascinated, because I think it makes us susceptible to kind of doing this kind of thing when events start happening in our world. This has got to be the end, we say. Every generation has thought that. Now, I, I grant you, one will be right but a lot have been wrong. Okay, so, so that's an over-fascination. The other way that we get very susceptible to being shaken is by apathy. We just don't even think about it. it it's the opposite, but it creates the same result. You know, it, It's too confusing, I'm not even going to fool with it. And we don't even look into it. And we don't study what is clear in Scripture about it. We think because we can't know it all, I can't know anything. That's not true. So we do want to be inquiring. We do want to be studying. We've got to find that balance, that humility, between kind of over-fascination and under-involvement. So these leave us susceptible to really being challenged. And What does this mean? What does that mean? And we begin to try to read the news through the lens of the Bible. It's a hazardous thing. And then thirdly, I would say another way to be susceptible to kind of being shaken regarding the end times, is to go solo. That you got up between your ears and you have enough to know you and your study and all your thinking. You know, we want to study the history of interpretation. How has the church interpreted these passages century after century? Godly men that God has used. How have they thought through these things? And how do we as a church think through it? We want to come together to discuss these things and not simply go in our own little think tank and figure it out. Uh, So the first two verses are very simple. Don't be shaken, don't be alarmed. Whatever you hear tomorrow in the news, don't be alarmed and don't be shaken. Okay, then the next thing he says is, is don't forget what I've told you. Look with me at three to five. In three to five he says, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come. It won't come, he's saying. They thought it had come. He's saying it will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So here Paul is kind of chiding them. I told you these things when I was with you. Don't you remember? He doesn't want them deceived. Now, I wish we knew everything that Paul told them. We don't. We just have this little letter. But clearly, he told them enough that they shouldn't have been shaken alarm. alarmed. They, they, they wouldn't be deceived. Now, what he does here, Paul tells us two things have to happen before Jesus Christ returns. These are unquestionable. We can rest in, these are two things that you want to be looking for. The first thing, of course, is this rebellion. And that word rebellion simply means apostasy. Apostasy is a falling away from faith. Now, I grant you that people have always fallen away from faith. Over the years, there's always a person or two or three or four. There are people that wander. We even sing about it. Lord, I'm prone. My heart's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So, but, but I think here there's an intensification. When you read this passage in light of Matthew 24, there's an intensification of this rebellion, this apostasy, this leaving of the visible church. It's kind of an abandonment of the gospel. It's an abandonment of God. It's a falling away. So he says that has to happen first. Now, as I said, you know, we're going to talk about the mystery of lawlessness in verse 6. There's always been that in operation. That's why John says that there have always been Antichrists. doesn't mean that, that they were the final Antichrist, but there have always been people that deny Christ has come in the flesh. So there's always that mystery of lawlessness that's taking place. So there will but there'll be a final rebellion. Okay, The second thing he says, and that's going to be wholesale, global, right? kind of this grand revolt against God. But then he says before he comes there will be a man of lawlessness that will be revealed. A man of lawlessness. Now who is this man of lawlessness? Well I tell you, just about everybody Uh, at certain periods of time, Nero, Caligula, you know, Diocletian, then you go to the popes and the papacy, and then you go to Martin Luther was thought to be the Antichrist, a man of lawlessness, at least from the Roman Catholic point of view. You have Hitler, you have Stalin. So, so in every generation, the church has tried to point out the man of lawlessness. But we don't know who he is. Paul doesn't tell us. But he does tell us what he is like. He does tell us some of the, he kind of describes him for us. This man of lawlessness is going to be just that, a man against the law, against the law of God. This is going to be in all likelihood a human being because in verse 9 we see that he comes by the activity of Satan. So he's not Satan himself. He's not an incarnation of Satan, but he's a man of lawlessness. So he's going to be against God's law. I think he's against God's right to even rule. He's opposing God, is what's happening here. And he's opposing God in terms of his right to rule the nations. So we see that he's a man of lawlessness. We see that Paul calls him a son of destruction. That means that he is doomed to destruction. But notice why, because he exalts himself over everything, over every object of worship. He's promoting himself. He wants to be worshipped himself. He's a, he is a, a son of destruction because he is seeking the worship. Notice what it says. He will make his seat in the temple. This is very interesting. <clears throat> Does this mean, just is it metaphorical? Is it just saying that he's looking to have all authority and all worship? It could mean that. Some people think to take his seat in the temple means that he's going to establish his seat in the temple in Jerusalem. That's what many of you maybe have been raised with. It's in Jerusalem. I don't think so, and I'll give you two reasons why. Number one would be that it's associated. A man of lawlessness is coming out of this great rebellion, and the rebellion is a falling away from faith. And yet nobody in the temple at Paul's writing would have been falling away from faith because they didn't have faith. The gospel had come. The gospel is established around the Mediterranean. They didn't have faith. So it wouldn't be falling away from faith because if they're in the temple, they didn't have any faith in the gospel. They didn't have faith because they were still practicing along the lines of the old covenant, not the new. But even more, Paul nine times in his writings calls the church the temple of God. Peter does the same thing. Jesus himself said he's the new temple. Those with faith in Christ are part of the temple. So I'd submit to you that the man of lawlessness who seeks to set or to to make his seat in the temple is looking to establish himself in the visible church. Let me go a little bit further with you on this because I think Paul's drawing this parody here. The man of lawlessness is trying to be a Christ. That's why John calls him the Antichrist. He's trying to be the new Christ to receive worship and honor. And the reason I say this is because in the scriptures, Jesus is told that he is coming. This word, parousia, he's coming. But in our text, the man of lawlessness is said to be coming. And then, of course, in the scriptures, we know that Jesus Christ appears. But in this text, we find the man of lawlessness appears. And then, In the scriptures, Jesus Christ has been revealed. Another Greek word, apocalypse. And yet we read here that the man of lawlessness is revealed. It's as if Paul's showing us this comparison. The man of lawlessness is the true anti-Christ. He is trying to take over Christ, to oppose Christ, to unseat Christ. Christ is the head of the church. He makes a seat in the temple. Uh, So I think what Paul's drawing at here is that this great rebellion is going to be a a falling away from the visible church following a new leader, one who would be the anti of what we believe Christ to be. And he says, these things must happen before he returns. And Paul's saying, don't forget I told you this. He's going to try to unseat the Messiah himself. Now, you know that, of course, right now, We don't see him yet. He hasn't come. And this is what he warns us in 6 to 8. Look with me at 6 to 8. Because he says, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness, not the man of lawlessness, but he says the mystery of lawlessness. And you know, mystery in Scripture is not always a puzzle to be solved, but it's just something God has yet to reveal. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And we see that, right? We see that in our day. We see a opposing of the gospel. We see a rejection of Christ as God's Messiah. We see a rejection of Christ as God's Son. We don't see it in a wholesale way, although it's increasing. He says it's already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, just like Jesus was revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This is the other huge question. Who's the restrainer? It could be God, the Spirit. It could be the church. It could be the gospel. It could be Satan. It could be the government. It could be the law. Who's restraining them? Well, I kind of follow what Augustine said. Augustine said, frankly, I have no idea. I have no idea. But what we do know, what we do know is that God is the one who removes that restraint, whatever that restraint is. God removes it, and God alone, and he does it in his time. But when he removes it, then the Son of Man will come. And with the breath of his mouth, in other words, with the puff of air, he will slay the wicked. He will slay the man of lawlessness. In no, other words, saying, don't forget I told you this. This isn't a yin-yang, good, evil, long, age-long battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. This isn't some, this isn't some kind of drawn out, we're not sure who's going to win. This is... Whew. I think Paul's drawing from Isaiah 11.5, where he says to, of the Messiah that the rod will come out of his mouth and strike the world. Or in Revelation nineteen five, that the sword will come out of his mouth and strike the wicked. That Christ will appear. When this man of lawlessness is revealed, so the Son of Man will come and destroy him. Destroy him. Bring about that new heavens and that new earth. That's what Paul's saying. Don't forget these things. Jesus, you will know when he comes. How so? Because the rebellion will be clear, and this man of lawlessness will be revealed. Pay attention, because quickly he will be destroyed. So for us today, what do we do? Are we to be looking through our calendar? No, what we do today is don't be apathetic to the Word. Know what the Word says. They obviously forgot. I don't want the Lord saying to any of this church, Don't you remember you read that? Don't you remember it was preached to you? I don't want to hear that from the Lord. I I want to be mindful of the scriptures. I want to be pouring over them, understanding the beauty of Christ, the nature of Christ, the work of Christ. I I want to also look at these particulars that we do have on the end times. I, I want to be aware of them so that I'm not caught off guard. You know, as part of the leadership team of this church, we do feel the responsibility to keep us prepared. This is why we're going through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. I had looked through the last 20 years of preaching and realized that an area that we have not covered seriously was eschatology. So we went to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Just like I look at, we haven't covered a lot of Old Testament historical stuff, so we're going to look at that in 2021. Uh, So we want to make sure we have a full diet to understand all that God has said, that we're not going to hear that, don't you remember? So, So let us not be apathetic to the scriptures. Secondly, we do need to be prepared to suffer. I think Paul, do you realize what's happening here? He's really telling us the future. He's telling us what's going to happen. I mean, people love to go to get their palms read and they, you know, as a kid used to do seances and what's happening in the future. We, we love to know the horoscopes. It helps us. All that stuff is pagan. But here, Paul is pulling back the curtain and saying, this is how it's going to go down. Doesn't have all the details that we may want, but there's enough to know and there's enough to be prepared. And I think he's preparing us so that we can suffer. Now, some of you have been raised with what we call a pre-tribulational view. What I, mean by, what I mean by that is that many of you have been raised that the man of lawlessness and the rebellion take place after the church has been caught up to God, to Christ in the sky. So the church is caught up or raptured up, and then some time comes, the great tribulation or the great rebellion happens, man of lawlessness is revealed, and then Jesus comes back. I don't think there are two returns of Christ. We went through this in chapter four and chapter five. I don't. I used to hold to that. I don't. One reason I don't is because why would Jesus try to comfort people with explaining this great rebellion has to come. And the man of lawlessness has to come if you're not going to be here. Why wouldn't he just say don't worry about it. You'll be out of there. You'll come after the mess is cleaned up. Why would he have sought to bring comfort to a people over how these things are going down to help them navigate through them if they were going to be taken up out of there? As I said before, this, this being caught up in chapter 4, 18, 17, 18, this being caught up, you know, the dead in Christ rise, those alive in Christ rise, and we come right back down, just like, just like the wedding feast in Matthew 25. The bridegroom comes, the virgins go out, and they return. they don't hang out there for seven years. They don't come twice. They come right in. So I think he's preparing us to suffer. But we can suffer because we know the outcome. With the breath of his mouth, he will slay him and make all things right. I think he's preparing us to be a firm, fixed people. So, so don't forget. So don't be shaken when you hear these things. You, know, you now know the two critical ingredients. There has to be a rebellion and a man of lawlessness. Those have to take place. But then look, when they do, be ready for the Son of Man to come and slay him with his breath. Okay, the last thing I think he's warning us here is to not be deceived. Don't be those who are deceived. You know, if you look um, with me, it, um verses... 9 to 12, he says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So it gives us a little bit more detail about this man of lawlessness. He's going to come and he's going to deceive. He will be given powers. Again, that kind of anti-Christ. He'll be given powers to do many things. And he will gain a following. And he will lead many in the visible church to follow him and to worship him. And and to pay homage to him. just like we're called to, we sang, hallelujah, what a savior. He's wanting to hear the same thing. He's going to draw a following. It's these who did not love the truth, who do not believe the truth. And then you see that God's going to bring judgment, not just upon the man of lawlessness, but all those who follow the man of lawlessness by by giving a strong delusion that they will continue to believe. This is God's judgment. They continue to believe. It's before that final judgment, God is judging them for their failure to believe. It, it, it reminds you of something. you know belief, as I've said before, to believe in God or to not believe in God is not evidential. It's not is there enough evidence to be provided so you can make a legitimate decision? You see him say they didn't love the truth. It, it, belief is moral. People want to believe or don't want to believe. So I read this book, um, Fool's Talk, by Ask Guinness. it's on the modern art of persuasion. And he talks about the uh, kind of the lack of belief. And and he quotes Bertram Russell, a famous British atheist philosopher. And he says, I do not believe there is a God, and I have devoted my life to proving that he does not exist. But even more than that, we don't want there to be a God. We don't want there to be a God. Why? It has to alter the way you live, to think that there's a God before whom you will stand and give judgment. Huxley said, Aldous Huxley said, we objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. These are some philosophers that are actually being somewhat honest. They don't want to believe in a God. So I want you to see that belief in God or lack of belief is not an evidential issue. It's a moral one. It's a moral one. So, so we don't, he says, don't be deceived. In other words, I, I want you to beware. I want you to beware of the fact that faith itself is not just mental assent. He says that you need to love the truth and believe the truth. So so if you're here thinking that belief is simply I agree with the church's statement of faith that is essential but it's not alone there is that love of the messiah we need to love the truth not just believe in it you know the, the best way for me not to be deceived in unfaithfulness to carol is not to know that it's wrong to commit adultery The greatest help for me not to be deceived is to love her. If I love her, then the temptation is pushed far, far away. So we're called to not just know the truth and to believe in it, but to love the truth. Do you love the Savior? If you love Christ, you won't be deceived by a false one. If you love the beauty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who has come in the flesh to lay down His life for us, not to be served. The false Christ comes to be served. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for us that we would be, that be drawn to the one from whom all beauty came, as C.S. Lewis said. We're going to the one from whom beauty came. He's the source of all beauty. We go to him. So, so beware that faith is not simply mental ascent. There is affections. That's why we talk about affections. You know, Paul warns the, the church at Ephesus. He says, you, you've or, uh, Jesus warns the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, you've left your first love. We don't want to leave our first love. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, that in the final days there'll be many Christ's that come and your love will grow cold. Be aware of the temperature of your own love. If you're cold or if you're kind of mm, indifferent, ask the Father for help. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, your affections uh, are going to be confusing. Ask God to open your eyes to the beauty of the Son that you may believe in the truth, but that you would love the truth as well. And then I would also say that you want to beware In terms of being deceived, you want to beware of distractions. You know, the two big things that face us in our day are both worldly pleasures and worldly concerns. Worldly pleasures can obviously steal our affection, and they can distract us because they're just so nice, they're so present, they're so real, they're right in front of me, and they dull us from ever thinking about that day that he comes back. Be very careful. You know, one Puritan said that many of the refusals of God are his greatest blessings to keep from us those things that might be distraction. His refusals can bless us. Jesus says in the parable of the sower, he says, he says that, you know, those seeds that were sown among the thorns, he says, and those sown among thorns, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, that is the troubles or concerns of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and that's the pleasures of the world, And the desires for other things, they enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. We're easily deceived. If we're pursuing the latest and the greatest, or if we're overwhelmed by the problems, the one thing we're not looking for is this return. And then I would also say uh, to beware of the grace by which you've been saved. You know, we're going to look at this next week, but if you look at your text and you just go to the very next verse in verse 13, you'll read this. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose you. You know, if you're here and you do love the Savior, The credit goes to God who has chosen you to open your eyes to the truth of what many people see the same thing you do and they don't see what you see and they don't love what you see. And so there ought to be this massive humility that that we want to be aware of how gracious God has been to us and to humble ourselves. And and this will keep us from being deceived. We'll be overwhelmed with the kindness and the care of God choosing us. Now we'll look at that in more detail next week, but, but Paul clearly in the text says, don't be alarmed at what you hear, the false reports. Don't be alarmed. And he says, don't forget what you've learned, that there has to be this grand rebellion, there has to be a man of lawlessness, and right now he's being restrained, but when God pulls out restraint, he will be revealed, and so the Son of Man will slay him with his breath. So we will See that if we're alive when that day comes. And then don't be deceived. Recognize right now the mystery of lawlessness is working. The world is looking to undermine the world's promoting self-exaltation, not exaltation of Christ. The world promotes you at the center of of the universe and not him. Uh, The world promotes pleasure now for you as opposed to delay when all things will be made right. There is so much deception going on. We need to believe and to love the truth. Be aware, humble ourselves over his electing mercy. and, And be mindful of even the blessings that you have or the struggles that you have. Both are temporal. Both will be removed. May they not distract you. May they not deceive you. So so we have much to thank God for in this text. So let's let's ask God for wisdom and grace uh, to understand this in a way that has practical help to you, uh, but also it stimulates your love for him. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.